Hi, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. This week is our membership drive. And unlike a lot of traditional business models, we have kind of a, a strange approach here. We don't tend to chase around foundations begging them for money. We don't have a lot of big moneyed people who have signed up to give us dollars. Most of the revenue that we have comes from two sources. It comes from me spending a ton of time out on the road, meeting with communities and having them make donations to our organization as part of that effort. And then from you, the members, we rely on you to help us fund this program, to help us fund this podcast, to help us fund the blog and and the other things that we're doing. And one of the things we've realized is that the more support that we can get from you, the less time, not only that I have to spend out on the road, but the more time that I can spend actually producing content and coming up with the stuff that you guys have all said you want to see and, and hear from us. So I'm asking you to take a few moments, go to our site, strongtowns.org, and click on become a member. Our basic membership is $25 a year. We have advocate members that are $75 a year and on up from there. Please do what you can and help us to help you continue to build a nation full of strong towns. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns back at CNU 22 in Buffalo. I have with me from the United Kingdom, Ben Hamilton Bailey. Ben is an urban designer from Bristol, flew in yesterday, right? A little bit of jet lag, maybe. He's going to be giving the plenary this Friday morning and wanted to chat with him because I love the topic of shared space, transportation, and I'm very fascinated by the fact that he calls himself a recovering architect. So Ben, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Let's talk a little bit about shared space. Okay. And I'd like to hear, because over here, we're fascinated with it in certain circles. And in certain circles, it, it seems like a ridiculous notion. Mm. But where you come from, it's actually advanced quite a bit. And I'd like to just hear how you would, in your words, describe the concept. Mm. Well, it's worth going back to a little bit of, uh, of history here in that a couple of decades ago, I was in, working with an organization called Sustrans building the project called the National Cycle Network in the UK. And part of that project involved understanding traffic engineering and and the design of streets because we wanted a completely connected network of safe routes. And in doing so, I began to be puzzled by the the background history and principles and philosophy of traffic engineering. Where did this profession come from? (laughs) And and why did it fit so uneasily with the rest of the design world? I was lucky enough to get a traveling fellowship to go and explore traffic in towns in a number of European countries, mainland European countries. So I spent a happy 10 weeks touring Germany and Switzerland and Sweden and Denmark and the Netherlands trying to find and talk to the people at the leading edge of thinking about safety and congestion and traffic in towns and pedestrian movement and so forth. And I was very lucky. I was met Jan Giel in uh, Copenhagen, of course. Uh, but he put me in touch with two people, a man called Jost Wahl, who was an engineer from 
Hungary, but working in the Netherlands, who was really the founder of what we now call the Vonerf, who was the first person in the 70s to begin to design residential streets, which were mixed multi-purpose spaces, which included vehicles, but on a different concept to our conventional street design. And he was very interesting. He said to me, you know, uh, things like, uh, the only way, Ben, you ever make a street safe is you must make it dangerous. And I thought that's an interesting yeah. paradox to begin with. But he also suggested that he put me in touch with a man called Hans Mondemann. And I'd never heard of Hans Mondemann before. And so last I, year I made Hans Monderman t-shirts and <laughs> handed them out. <laughs> so I keep going. I'm yeah. fascinated. Well, that, that was a very lucky break because Hans, I rang him up and he answered the phone first time and, and said, fine, I'll get, you know, let's spend a day together. I met this, to my surprise, besuited, very sober looking avuncular civil servant from the north of the Netherlands who was head of road safety in the province of the Netherlands. And Hans very generously gave me his time and showed me his work, and I was completely bowled away. Here was a traffic engineer who had completely rethought the principles of traffic in towns and not only come up with observations about human behavior, which were very interesting, but had put them into practice. There was you know, no doubting the stuff worked. They were all over his native Friesland, there were towns and villages and bigger cities that had started to adopt his notion of removing conventional traffic signals and road markings and signs and separation and barriers and all of those things and started to work with a much, much richer understanding of human psychology. It's no coincidence that Hans, as you probably know, was, in addition to being a very senior civil servant and a civil engineer and a traffic engineer, was also a driving instructor. I did not know he, that. He ran an advanced driving school. He was okay. a very hardworking man. And being a driving instructor gave him an insight into how drivers respond to the cues around them. And that, I think, informed a combination of very good engineering skills with psychology gave him this extraordinary take on how to handle traffic in towns. But Hans was it difficult to pigeonhole. He was a great car enthusiast. He loved cars. He, he thought they were a very brilliant bit of technology. And he had no time with the sort of left sandal-wearing hippies who wanted to rid the towns of cars. Right. He, yeah, a useful bit of kit. But he realized that if you wanted to create safety... As he said, first of all, never, ever treat drivers as idiots because you get idiotic behavior. Treat drivers as intelligent beings and you get an intelligent response. And we know that from educational psychology. It's just the same in traffic engineering. The quote from him that I actually put on the shirt, because I made a line of T-shirts last year all right. of Hans Monderman, and it was when you treat people like idiots – they, they act, act like, like idiots. idiots. And, and I, that's a brilliant insight yeah. that I think traffic engineers assume everybody's an idiot. He first demonstrated that to me when the first hour that we met him, we drove out on a very hot July day through the very bucolic pastoral Friesland landscape. It's lovely. A very lot of cows. It's very rural. And there were, he was driving me down a little tiny country lane with cows on either side. And I kind of thought, Mm, I'm not sure I'm in the right place. I was studying traffic in towns. What am I doing out here? <laughs> right. He stopped the car. He said, did you see that sign back there? So I said, no. So he said, come on, have a look and tell me what it means. And it was a standard European triangular warning sign standard across all of Europe with a cow in the middle. <laughs> so he said, he said, now what does that mean? And I said, well, I, don't know. I guess it means uh, beware of cows. Yeah. And he said, now look, you can see them, you can 
hear them, you can smell them, you can just about reach out your hands and touch them. You'd have to be completely sensorily deprived <laughs> not to know there are cows around here. Right. And you're not allowed to drive a car if you're sensorily deprived. Right. That sign says, you're a friggin' idiot yeah. and we don't trust you. Yeah. Now, first rule, never do that to drivers. Never, ever treat them as idiots. Use their common sense in just the same way that if you walk into a church, you don't need a sign saying, do not fart. Right. Everybody knows that right. there's a social protocols that we yeah. are very powerful if we just let them be and don't talk about them too much. Right, right, right. For that moment, I thought, this is an interesting man. Here's, a, <laughs> here's an interesting traffic engineer. Right. Because usually the traffic engineers are out there erecting the signs. Uh, absolutely. And yeah, yeah. But Hans and I then started a quite a long and, and, for me, very happy partnership. I then went over to the States at, for a year at Harvard with uh, notes and thoughts and was able to process that. And, and we still had no terminology to describe. It wasn't just Hans Mund. I mean, you know, Bjarne Vinterberg in Denmark was doing pretty much the same thing. There were people in Spain and... Switzerland, a remarkable engineer called Fritz Kobe was doing fascinating stuff in Bern in Switzerland to introduce low speed, continuous flow movement patterns. But we didn't have a term for it. We, the von Erf meant something else. People were saying this is a bit Mondemannish, and that wasn't a very good term. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it, it, traffic calming wasn't right. We needed a term. Hans and I decided to put a bid in for European Union funding for a big research project, and it needed a title. So he and I spent a long evening on the telephone, and, and I then sat with a bottle of whiskey most of the night, and by next morning we had the term shared space. Yeah. And it just seemed the closest we could get to what we were talking about. He said, that's fine, that'll do. Yeah. And, it, and it stuck. Yeah. So the term shared space merely described a much bigger shift in the spectrum, if you like, away from the regulated world of uh, the state deciding what you do, traffic signals, highway rules, speed limits, speed cameras, all of that stuff, towards the social protocols and informal negotiations that govern us in the rest of our lives. I don't need to be told where yeah. to sit or how to deal with you as another individual because right. we have very powerful social protocols that determine how we behave. And what Hans was saying, if you allow those to be the, at the forefront, there'll be more effective determinants of safe behavioral uh, techniques and therefore safety and traffic in towns than is the state. You know, when, when I heard Hans Monerman describe this in videos, when I've listened to your work, there's something very like human about this Sure, that seems like we should very easily grasp it and, and almost say, this is the most logical thing. Yet I see and hear people when you suggest this completely freak out sure. and want the, what I would call like the nanny state, the, you know, the large sure. top down regulation. Well, to jump what forward a, a few years, we worked on a, a flagship scheme in, London called Exhibition Road. It was it, Exhibition Road is an unusual street. It connects all the great cultural museums and you know the Goethe Institute and the Ecole Française and the Ismaili Center and blah blah blah. A wonderful set of expensive and valuable buildings, but the street itself was was miserable. Under very strong political leadership in the borough of Kensington, Chelsea, I was lucky enough to be part of the team to rethink this space. And just before the proposals were launched. 
there was a concern from the Department for Transport, the government, about how are they going to sign this street? I mean, w w w this is a you know street without uh, rules, without signs, without right. crossings, without <laughs> traffic. You know, not Times of London, the Times journalist picked up on this and produced a cartoon with a driver driving along in a road sign which said, do anything you like ahead. Okay. Which kind of pinned it on the head. In other words, the responsibility is on you as a human being. Sure to make decisions, not to allow the state to decide through a red light or a green light or whatever it is to determine what your movements were. Mm -hmm. And I think this chimes with a much bigger shift away from the optimism of the 50s and sort of post end of the 20th century, when really both the left and the right wing of political philosophy assumed that somehow the state could take care of you from cradle to grave right so that could as long as the rules were strong enough we could sort out social problems we could optimize it yeah 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 and you can see that reflected in everything from Le Corbusier's writing about uh, ordered streets you know would live over here and work over here and play over here right to the paintings of um, Mondrian mm -hmm. very ordered calm clear rational order and what we've learned recently is, of course, that life is much, much more complicated than that. Right. And the more we learn about the human brain and the genome project and DNA and human psychology, we've made great strides in the past 20 years. We realize that the human brain is completely fantastic. And we are so good and quick at responding to stimuli and to different environments and to circumstances that actually you don't need the state to tell you what, how to behave or what to do. You don't need a sign saying, beware of cows. It's perfectly obvious where, yeah. where, where the cows are. And that's the reason that I use the image of the ice skating rink. Okay. Because ice skating rinks are fascinating because a whole bunch of strangers come together on sliding around on steel blades. And how, At high speeds, right? How yeah. are you going to sort these people out so they don't bump into each some other? Some are falling, some Absolutely. are really good. Some yeah. are experts, some are yeah. beginners. You know, and you couldn't model that process. But we all know that who've ever you know, had the joy of, it, of ice skating is that part of the pleasure comes from this incredible coordination and anticipation that you enter into with a whole bunch of strangers. Mm -hmm. In ways that remind us of, of flocks of birds sometimes or shells of fish in the way that we move. And so that we've got skills in negotiating movement and giving way or priority or taking precedence which are much more complex than saying first it's the traffic and stop then it's the pedestrian stop or the cyclists are here and, and the wheelchairs are here or something like that life is more complicated than, than that how do you see the engineering profession adapting or, or not adapting to some of this new i won't even call it new thinking but new awareness yeah. Of the complexity of cities and places and, and these environments? Well, I'm quite optimistic, really. Progress has been faster than certainly Hans predicted before he died. He said I would spend 30 years getting to, to really uh, integrate this in, into the professions, the engineering professions. Of course, it's frustrating, but I'm encouraged by the UK government produced a document three or four years ago now called the Manual for Streets. Now, you can file this under dull but important. Right. Because it wasn't the world's most thrilling document to read, but it was immensely important. It has influenced particularly the UK by introducing the notion that streets were places in their own right as well as corridors for movement. 
Now, that's something that most of us take for granted. Of course they are. That's what cities are about. But up until that moment, there wasn't a policy basis to talk to engineers about placemaking. It wasn't in their language and lexicon. Ever since Manual for Streets, it is. And that slowly we're getting a generation of engineers, traffic engineers. I mean, I would cite two, Ian Lockwood in the States Mm -hmm. or Phil Jones in the UK, who get the notion of placemaking and the psychology of behavior built into streets in ways that doesn't just rely on you know turning to the right page in the traffic manual. And remember that the previous policy statement was 1966, Roads and Urban Areas, which is based on the Buchanan Report, which said the only way to deal with traffic in towns is to segregate traffic at all opportunities from pedestrian movement. So you must have underpasses or overbridges or barriers or high curbs or pedestrian areas. You mustn't mix traffic and pedestrians. And that seemed a very logical sure, notion sure. at the time. At the time right. But that hadn't actually come into the political policymaking until Man of the Streets. So... The engineering profession slowly, of course, it's, it varies between municipalities, but you are seeing younger engineers beginning to realize that, my golly, we are being empowered to think for ourselves. You don't have to follow a rule book. <laughs> that's the thing there's that no, I find fascinating. There's no dragon yeah. in the filing cabinet that's going to bite us in the bum if yeah. we do something wrong because the dragon doesn't exist. Right, right. I'm actually can engineer. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, lots of engineers say, well, we couldn't do this because we'd be sued. Right. And to which a lot of people, including the Institution of Civil Engineers, says, nonsense. Right. Absolute nonsense. Totally. You can only be sued if you're negligent. Mm-hmm. And you're not negligent if you demonstrate that you've thought about a problem and come up with a solution. Something may go wrong. Life is complicated. But as long as you've demonstrated that you've thought about it professionally, taken good advice and and investigated it with with a modicum of uh, professional thoroughness, you're not negligent. It's fascinating because even here in the U.S. where we're, you know, litigation happy – I see that same exact thing. I mean, we, we get engineers all the time who say there's too much liability in doing that. And we will actually contact the city's insurance company and say, what do you think about this? And they said, would well, you have a policy? Have you actually like looked at alternatives? Mm-hmm. And then you chose this one. That's all you need to do. Sure. You can't design a system that has zero accident rate you can't design a system that will work 100 percent of the time but as long as you are rational about how you go about it and thoughtful we don't have a problem insuring you sure having the institution of civil engineers publish a book called highway risk and liability Mm -hmm. poorly presented and poorly circulated but nevertheless very clear that it was not either professionally respectable or indeed wise for engineers merely to repeat what they've always done. You know, why did the engineer cross the road? Because that's what we did last year. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) In other words, freeing up engineers to to think and to use a multitude of understandings and skills, as Hans Mondermann did, and not merely, well, I've been trained that, you know, page 56 of some manual says That's why you go into engineering in the first place, right? Because you're a thoughtful problem solver. Absolutely. Yeah. We were fortunate in having a, a decision by the House of Lords, dear old House of Lords. I know people laugh at this whole bunch In of, America, bunch we love, people, I mean, the House of Lords just seems such <laughs> like a, a wonderful institution. They're a wonderful anachronism, but they do come up with occasionally some very wise decisions, and they're, ult- they're our ultimate court, you know, in, in the highest court in the land. And a case called Gorringe versus Calderdale, 
strange name, Mrs. Gorringe, but she clarified things very well. She, uh, a native of Calderdale, and was driving home on a road she was familiar with, but the local authority, Calderdale, had taken out all the road markings and warning signs on a bend in the road, and she drove too fast around the corner and rolled her car and was injured. And her insurance companies sued the local authority for not putting warning signs on that on the bend. And amazingly, the case went to the House of Lords, who ruled unanimously and very forcefully in favour of the local authority and granted them all costs, arguing that it is not the duty of the state to protect the driver from his or her foolish actions, and that therefore... A local authority may choose to put up a warning sign, but there's no obligation to. You mustn't wow. entrap drivers, yeah. but you cannot protect drivers from their own foolishness, mm -hmm. and they shouldn't try to. Mm -hmm. And at a time when local authority budgets are under pressure, it's become very important to be clear about what your statutory relationship with your public is. And that you, there's no need to put up a warning sign that you know, may in, in its turn facilitate somebody to drive fast. Right. Why do you want to do that? I was in Kansas City a couple years ago, and in our organization, this has become kind of a famous thing in our circle of listeners, because when I was there, they have a little bit like Buffalo here, these really wide streets with no traffic yeah. and, you know, stores that are kind of dying along it and, you know, land use that's really struggling. And I came up with a list of suggestions to him. And one of them was get rid of your traffic signals, mm -hmm. which are the only source of congestion you have, yeah. and develop your downtown into a, a shared space environment. Mm. I was roundly attacked and criticized by people from Kansas City, both engineers and non-engineers and place advocates. And Why? Oh, because that's a, that's a crazy idea. People mm. will kill themselves. There'll be mm. mayhem and chaos. Mm. It was a little bit of a, you know, kind of, I think, not understanding the concept well, mm. and I didn't explain it deeply enough in the suggestion. Well, it is very, very counterintuitive. I mean, it I is. come back to this statement, the only way to make a street safe is make it dangerous. Right. That risk compensation theory, which mm. is a boring name for an extremely important foundation stone for shared space. You can't really understand shared space before you realize that life is complicated, that risks, hazards, are useful ways of keeping us safe. And you don't create safety by preventing access to hazards because we adjust our behavior to the level of risk with which we're comfortable. Mm. So that a pedestrian guardrail or a warning sign or a seat belt or an ABS, uh, an auto braking system on a car, doesn't necessarily keep us safer. It adjusts our behavior right. and transfers the risk somewhere else. Mm. That's a quite a complicated issue to understand, so that the notion that most accidents are good things, which is a very important principle. Right. Uh, if you're bringing up a toddler, that toddler has to burn his or her finger on a fire once or twice to become safe in the event of fire. Right. You don't make that toddler safe by never exposing him or her to fire. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, I have teenagers learning to drive. I want them to have accidents. Right. I hope they survive them, right. but I want them to have the learning process. Of, of I remember as a, my first you know, six months with a car, I went in the ditch twice. Absolutely. And I learned navigating driver. the corners to how to drive a lot safer. And it was one of those things where I had a $350 car. <laughs> yeah. I crashed into a couple of trees yeah. and learned yeah. some lessons, but learned them yeah. kind of inexpensively. But, but coming back to the Kansas City example, the difficulty is that if you take any one of these elements 
elements in isolation, like taking out traffic signals mm -hmm. or taking out barriers or, or something, it's unlikely to work in isolation right. because the whole of shared space is premised around lower design speeds. Mm -hmm. And I say design speeds in contrast to speed limits because they're quite different things. That shared space works when you can foster and facilitate traffic to move smoothly and continuously at a speed which is compatible with human behavior. Mm -hmm. And we have evolved to cope with the speeds of up to 18, 19, 20, 21 miles an hour. It's the speed of a fit young hunter chasing an antelope. Our skull thickness, our rib cage is all premised around that speed. And we can anticipate and move within the, that speed framework pretty well. Move above that speed and you feel very uncomfortable. You can't do it and our you know, for all sorts of reasons, we're, we're less comfortable. So the question is, how do you then introduce a speed framework, a speed context, which is compatible with shared space? And the answer isn't speed limits or speed cameras or speed bumps or chicanes or all those barriers. It is about giving the driver sufficient cues that encourage that to happen naturally. So concepts like edge friction, which is a new concept in engineering, that you must fill the driver's peripheral vision with as much activity and interest, ambiguity, intrigue, uncertainty, the things that conventional engineering hates dealing get, with. Tries to get rid of at yeah. all costs, right. Well, what you want is a bit of uncertainty, right. because that makes the brain slow down to absorb lots of cues, and, and without thinking about it, you're driving slower. So you want lots of beautiful women on the streets, you right. want to have lots of cafes, you want to have flowers, you want to have life happening in the edge peripheral vision, and speeds will drop. Now, again, that means engineers designing their streets outside the highway boundaries, because what happens on the buildings, what happens, how close the trees are to the edge, what the shape of the canopy, the lighting, the materials, and so on, will all combined to engender a speed context. Right. And the question is really, what is the preferred speed context? If you're designing a freeway, you want traffic to be moving at 60 miles an hour or something, whatever it is. And so you keep the edges free of any incident. There's nothing to distract your peripheral vision. So you drive fast. Right. There are big signs which confirm your view that that's the speed you should be driving at. But in a town, you want the opposite. You, if you want lower speeds, you want small things that you really have to Look, use your eyes and use your brain to look at, and you want unexpected incident and crazy public art or people hanging up an unusual sign which you remember, or an old friend who, ah, oh, I right. haven't seen him for a while. Right. And that all helps to bring speeds down. So at Poynton... I was we, going to ask you about Poynton. Yeah, well... Because it's a beautiful example. The YouTube video is fantastic, and we've showed it to dozens of audiences over here. And there's something intuitive, you know, when you watch it, from the way it was to the way it is, there's something calming even watching it, <laughs> you know, that you experience as a person. Can you describe that? Sure. I mean, it wasn't an easy scheme. Uh, Poynton is a very ordinary place, uh, which is why I like it. It's, it's not a big city center. It's south of Manchester. It's an ordinary workaday retail town of about 16,000 people. And it's a crossroads town. Mm -hmm. Over the years, the traffic volumes have built up to a huge volume, 26,000 vehicles. There's no bypass, and nor is there any prospect for one. This town, as a result, was dying. The little high street, or main street as you would call it, running off one side of the junction, had 
16 out of its 32 businesses boarded up and closed and no sign of any further investment. So big decisions had to be made if Pointing was to be saved. So we had the political momentum to do something. But it became pretty clear to us that you could pave that high street, that shopping street, with gold. It wouldn't have made any difference as long as it was cut off from the rest of its town by this desperate junction with traffic signals and turning lanes and more turning lanes and more warning signs. And, you know, it was horrible. It was horrible. It was really, really bad. It was horrible. Yeah. And nobody nowadays chooses to come into town if it's horrible. I mean, you can get your stuff on the internet or out of town superstores, go there. You right. go to the local store. Right. You had to make it a place where people would choose voluntarily to come in to spend time in Poynton. So that meant we had to really get rid of the, not the traffic, because we couldn't get rid of the traffic, but we wanted to get rid of the paraphernalia that had been put in place to cope with the traffic. Right. So we proposed taking out the traffic signals, taking out the road markings, reducing the lanes of traffic from three to one in each of the approaches to the junction. Now, many engineers thought we were in cooking land. Right. No, that's crazy. We've got um, one-mile congested queues with three lanes, and you're proposing to reduce them to one lane? (laughs) You've got to be crazy. Right. But we argued that your speed of journey in a town, a city, doesn't matter where it is, has nothing to do with your speed between the, the nodes, between points. You can drive at a thousand miles an hour between the stoplights. You don't make it get you any faster. Your speed is determined by the efficiency of the junction. And junctions work much more efficiently at low speeds, at, at around about 12, 13, 14, very tight headways. Mm-hmm. A junction people can negotiate very easily. They also work better with a single entry, line of traffic entry, because then the driver is not overloaded. They can make the cognitive decisions to keep flowing. And you see, as it works now, the traffic very rarely pauses. You get constant movement, the junctions in, in working very hard to keep the traffic moving. It did require some very bold political decisions because it wasn't popular. It was very counterintuitive. Taking the lights out with mm. 26,000 vehicles a day and no rules. And interestingly, the debate about speed limits because there was a 30-mile-an-hour speed limit, as there is in all built-up areas. And nowadays, you can introduce a 20-mile-an-hour speed limit. Mm. And a lot of people, understandably, said, well, surely you'll introduce a 20-mile-an-hour speed limit, won't you? And I argued against it. Uh, I don't think it's necessary. I mean, I wasn't going to die in a ditch over the issue. I don't sure. care, really. But I said, it's not important. It's really not an important issue. People uh, will just drive. People will drive Listen. to the queues that they get from yeah. the road. They're nothing to do with the speed limit. Yeah. But in hindsight, I'm now very glad we won that argument because I think that placing a 20-mile-an-hour speed limit would have set up exactly the wrong expectations in the driver's mind. Olo. The state is telling me how, how fast I can drive, and I should be going 20 miles an hour. Actually, no, no. If there's school children that are coming out and crossing the road, you should be driving at 10, right. 12. Right. If grandma wants to cross the road, it's different speed. Mm-hmm. If a fire engine's coming out, you know, it's different. Mm-hmm. You're, you're taking your cues from your surroundings, not from the state. So the debate about speed limits, I think, was a, a helpful one. And we, in fact, won the argument, and it's still 30 miles an hour to this day, although nobody drives through Pointing at 30 miles an hour. Right. It meant that a politician, a local politician, had to take a very bold set of decisions, realizing that this was about the future of the town, the, the existence of Pointing. And whilst engineers are arguing about whether there will be congestion or not and how pedestrians would cross and whether it would be safe and, and blah, 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 he kept saying, 
that's all very well, but actually the purpose is about the town. And if it's congested or not, I don't really care. Mm -hmm. And this is important because <laughs> transport is right. often seen, and transportation has developed in the past, as almost like a, an end in itself, a right. goal in its own right. right. And it isn't. It's merely a means to an end. It's a means to service and support our communities, our cities. Mm -hmm. And cities are only about two things. They're about economic exchange or social exchange. Mm -hmm. That's that's all we, we use it for. Money, sex. That's, right. that's all. You know, sure. Basically. Um, <laughs> you know, the purpose of towns is not to move between them. It's useful. We need to move between them. We need right. transportation. Right. But that's not the purpose. And Howard Murray, who was the politician for Poynton, had to keep reminding people that this wasn't a transportation project. It was an economic project. Right. If drivers grumbled that they didn't find it comfortable, well, good. That's great, you know. Or if people find it's—I uh, I don't, I don't know what the rules are. I, I, I you know, I, I feel terrible. Oh, good, great, great, great. That's what we're not. <laughs> so it was—it's difficult because, yeah. I mean, my mailbag is full of people saying, "I don't like Pointing. I, I drove through it. I didn't know what to do." Yeah. And I wrote back and say, "That's great. great. I'm Thank you. <laughs> Thanks we, so much. We succeeded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the nice thing is, is to see the economic recovery of Pointing so dramatic. Yeah, it looks like it's been huge. Last year, it was voted the seventh most popular place in the UK to live. Wow. The footfall has increased about fourfold. People, the dwell time, more importantly, than the footfall. Yeah. People, the amount of time that people spend in the town having coffee with their mates or mm. shopping. Of course, the nature of the shops are otherwise ones which you can't get on the internet. You can get your nails done or you have a cup of coffee or right, right. a specialist hardware shop where you yeah. get good advice and you know who you're dealing with and so on. So towns are having to change very right. rapidly. Right. And the point in operation, you know, it was, it was major open heart surgery, as it were, yeah. helped that transformation so that now you've got the sort of shops that people want to come into town for anyway, right. all the businesses and the cafes and the life, you know, it's interesting. Right. And the town has changed. Let me ask you about congestion, though. From what I've seen at Poynton, and there was the one set of videos about when the lights went out in London and they interviewed the people. Flow, yeah. This actually, traffic congestion is not the problem no. when you're done with this. Traffic congestion is not the problem. I was recently in, in Toronto and I, I asked them, the city, you know, what, what are the big issues here? And they said, traffic congestion, traffic congestion, traffic congestion. And I said, well, I have bad news for you. Every successful city there's ever been has been congested. The time to start worrying is when you haven't got traffic congestion. Right. That's when you should be really Yeah, scared. Buffalo has in, no traffic congestion. Uh, yeah, Buffalo, right. Detroit, uh, yeah, that's Detroit when you start worrying. Right, right. Traffic congestion in London has remained pretty constant since 1890 to 2014. Mm -hmm. Traffic speed of movement is between 9 and 11 miles an hour, which mm -hmm. it was in Sherlock Holmes's mythical time. Yep to today. That's the capacity that the street network has. And if you drive a Ferrari, a Maserati, or a Hanson horse and cab, you make the same speed. Yeah. Martial Echenique, who's the head of a professor of architecture at Cambridge University, wrote a, a seminal paper in the 1970s. The solution to traffic congestion is to do nothing. Whatever you do, it'll still be congested. Right. So don't worry about traffic congestion. And that's very hard to say because people's perception is it takes me hours to commute or to get through. I'm being a little bit flippant here because... You speak in my language. Okay. So. <laughs> I, <I'm> but, <laughs> but I mean, in, in Poynton, uh, we did measure the journey times mm -hmm. and it was badly congested before with the traffic signals and it was taking about 
well, depending on the time of day, but 20, 25 minutes to get through this little town. Mm-hmm. And by removing the lights, removing the traffic lanes, thinning down the, the carriageways to very narrow three-meter lanes, we've reduced the journey times by more than 50%. I mean, it takes us half the amount of time to get through. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, I can't see where we've lost because we've managed to create a huge amount of additional space which we've been able to go to temporary car parking or wider footways, pavements, um, uh, sidewalks, to trading places that shops can spill out and trade on, on the front. Enormous amounts of space. There's a wonderful church on the crossroads in Poynton designed by Alfred Waterhouse, our greatest Victorian architect. And it's very popular with weddings and funerals and so on. Weddings, they're booked up two years ahead. I don't know how people book up their weddings two years ahead, but they do. Wow. Wow. But previously, there's a beautiful lich gate you know, on the edge of the entry to the church. And this opened out onto this ghastly kind of traffic signal controlled hell. Right. And again and again, I'd go up there on a Saturday and you see some bride trying to make a dignified entrance to the church, yeah. getting out with a you know huge truck right up right. the back of the bridal car right. and uh, right. traffic signals going and fumes and noise and, it, and you know I used to speak to the photographers the wedding photographers and yeah. they say this is the worst gig in the world <laughs> you cannot get a good shot of the bride yeah, and her yeah. father you know entering the church and I thought this is crazy right. I mean we, we live here what, what's yeah. the point of having a town and a right. church you know, if you can't do this so we've been able to create very generous space outside the church yeah. and a lot of people said how are you going to stop people parking on there? Uh, so it's obvious that that's where right. the hearse or the bridal car right. waits. It's yeah. Obviously, it has. It's a church. You right. can see. Who's yeah. going to park right in so front let, of the let, church? Let right. people be intelligent. Yeah. And if they, somebody misbehaves, somebody will soon frown at them and, and right. tell them off. And right. They'll feel uncomfortable. Right. You know. Last question. This has been fascinating. I love this stuff. I'm a little bit depressed because I feel like you're doing amazing work. There's other people doing amazing work, but it's on the other side of the ocean. <laughs> How much hope is there for us here in the United States? Do you have any optimism for us that this is going to become – maybe it's Hans's time frame, the next 30 years. Well, is there a time frame where this becomes part of America? No, no I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic because – change in these fields can happen very fast. Mm. Just note how quickly we've changed our habits on smoking, for example. Phenomenal speed. Clearly, the context on this side of the Atlantic is different, and you're dealing with a, a built environment which tends to post-date the introduction of the automobile on the whole, mm. with a few exceptions. Right. And so that the scale is bigger, the streets are wider, the buildings are bigger, you know, and the sprawl is greater, and, and so forth. But that, I think, merely means that your place-making techniques have to work a little harder and be a bit tougher. The principles are just the same. Human beings are just the same, whether you live in Manhattan or the, you know, the jungles of South America. People are the same. A smile, a, a gesture, a beautiful woman uh, turning the heads of men is, is exactly the same everywhere right. you go. Right. And all that shared space is about is using who we are as a human species, a complex primate, a great ape, who likes living socially. We like congregating in places. We're very technically proficient. We've got wonderful machines to help us around. But if you work with the understanding the psychology of who we are and how our evolution has shaped us, 
then that's the same in the States or Canada or, or Italy or China or, or India or anywhere else. We're the same species. And that's why I think I'm optimistic because America, more than anywhere else, has the ability to reinvent itself very fast. And that the reinventing the notion of what cities and towns are about and how you overcome the the complexities of different forms of movement, you know, there's a very energetic and, you know, a, a country which pulls together all sorts of resources. Look at this, you know, see right. you in Buffalo, you see a lot of interesting, intelligent people putting their minds to this. And so if the lessons that people like Hans Mondemann and Joost Waal have taught us from Europe can contribute to uh, reconciling traffic movement with cities, then that's just one component of a really important regeneration of urbanity, which can encourage what ultimately this is about, which is civility, the yeah. notion of civil life. And civility is an interesting notion that has not yet appeared in engineering manuals. We can't measure it, but everybody recognizes it. Right, right. I am so excited to hear your plenary on Friday. And thank you for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Uh, ben Hamilton Bailey. Thank you. Thank much. you. Thank you That's so very much. Very kind. Take care, everybody, and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah. We studied traffic patterns and found that drivers move the fastest through yellow lights. So now, we just have the red and yellow lights. <laughs> Yay! Come on! Stay yellow! Stay yellow! Man, I'm making record time. Only I had some place to be.